My name is Heidi, and I love stories. Funny stories, sad stories, and what on earth just happened to stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school and a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. Pharaoh has decided to play hardball with Moses and Aaron, and by extension with God. This is probably not Pharaoh's best move, but it still takes Moses and Aaron quite a bit of convincing to get the people of Israel to let them try again, but they do. God gives them a fair warning that Pharaoh's not going to listen this time or anytime, anytime soon. But Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, ask him again to let the people go because God has sent them. Pharaoh demands a miracle and Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. Moses had already seen this back at the burning bush, which, by the way, the burning bush is far weirder than the snake stick thing. But still, no one else had seen this, or so you would think. But nope, Pharaoh sees the snake on the ground, summons his magicians, and they do the same thing. They throw sticks on the ground, and they sing a musical number. Wait, wait, that's Prince of Egypt. But they do throw sticks on the ground, and they become snakes. And despite the fact that Aaron's staff, well, now snake that would be a staff again, did in fact eat all of the other staffs that had turned into snakes, uh, Pharaoh still didn't listen. And his heart was, as the Bible calls it, hardened, which basically means he had decided that he was going to go to war with God. And he was going to win. Or at least try to win, which meant not giving up. The staff turned into a snake was impressive and very, very cool, but it also didn't actually hurt anybody. I mean, aside from the fact that the magicians lost some staffs, uh, there wasn't really any big damage done. At this point, God tells Pharaoh, through Moses and Aaron, that he is going to start plaguing the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron see Pharaoh on the Nile early in the morning in his little kingly raft thing, and they tell him, again, let the people go, and Pharaoh's like, no. And so they strike the water of the Nile River, which, by the way, is huge and thousands of miles long. Like, it is an epic, epic watercourse. And also at the time, and even now, the Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. I probably shouldn't have used the word blood because that's exactly what the Nile turns into. Blood. All of the water in the Nile is suddenly undrinkable and not just red. It's not mud. It's blood. And occasionally people will try to say that the Egyptians didn't know the difference, but literally anyone who has ever interacted with either mud or blood knows the difference between the two. You know, for lots of reasons. Fish can't survive swimming around in blood, so all of the fish in the Nile died. And the people of Egypt not only were surrounded by the smell of stinky fish, dead in blood, they also couldn't drink any water from the Nile. It was completely ruined. So they had to dig along the banks to try to get some water that was in the ground, because again, the river was corrupted. And this lasted for a full week. Pharaoh was surprisingly unimpressed by this sign from God because his magicians, once again, by their secret arts, managed to turn some water into blood and Pharaoh's like, oh, in that case, I don't care. So after the Nile has had its full week of menstruation, sorry, blood water, whatever, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh again and he still will not let the people go. They ask again, he says no again, and this time a second plague comes. Out of the Nile comes up thousands and thousands of frogs. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a frog, but they're kind of gross and they smell weird and they make a lot of noise. I have, in a story that is not related to the Bible and therefore I won't tell here, have been surrounded by many, many frogs before. It is unpleasant and makes it difficult to sleep. And the land of Egypt was literally plagued by frogs. Uncountable number of these hippity-hoppity problems. Amazingly, 
The magicians managed to do the same thing by their, quote, again, secret arts. So more frogs showed up. How helpful are they? Pharaoh takes that as good news. Like, the magicians weren't able to make God's frogs go away. They just made more frogs and made the plague worse. But apparently that's a win for Pharaoh. So he doesn't let the people go. But he does realize that the frogs need to go away. So he begs Moses and Aaron to uh, call off the frog plague. And they do. And as soon as Pharaoh realizes that the frogs are going away, now they didn't just disappear. They did all just die. So there are thousands of frog bodies now stinking up the land of Egypt in addition to the dead fish. But Pharaoh has no interest in, you know, backing off because so far his gods are doing just fine competing with their god. Now, keep in mind that Moses and Aaron have actually not yet asked Pharaoh to be let go permanently. They've only asked for three days in the desert and Pharaoh is still insisting on saying no. So the next time he says no, we get plague number three, gnats. Sorry, gnats. We get plague number three. It's gnats. And gnats are nasty and real bad. And all of the people and animals in Egypt are now covered in gnats everywhere. To make matters worse for Pharaoh, his gods have been utterly bested by God. God, And the magicians are unable to copy the plague of the gnats. In fact, they say specifically that this is the finger of God. Like, we can't compete with this. We don't have the tools it takes to beat out this kind of plague. And Pharaoh refuses to listen to even his own counsel at this point. He thinks there's still a chance. At that point, In Egypt's theology of their gods, in particular, Pharaoh was considered a god. So this is a personal affront on him as god and king that a different god is plaguing his country. He's not quite clever enough, or at least not humble enough, to see that this is not going to work. Like, this contest is not a contest. But he's insisting on staying in it as a contest, which brings us to plague number four. Worse than gnats, flies. The entire country is covered in flies. Both are gross, but flies are bigger and they also carry disease and it's just a bad time all around. This does break through to Pharaoh a little bit. And so he tells Moses and Aaron that if they call off the flies, they can go and sacrifice to God within the land of Egypt. Like they can't leave the country, but all of the people can have their time off and go make their sacrifices. Moses and Aaron are not willing to accept these terms for lots of reasons. The reason that Moses presents to Pharaoh is that the sacrifices that the Hebrews were planning on offering would be abominable to the Egyptians. And he says outright the Egyptians would probably kill the Hebrews if they saw what they were up to. They needed to go three days into the wilderness and then they would make their sacrifices and come right back. And Pharaoh is like, fine, you can go into the wilderness. You just can't go that far, but please call off these flies and I will let you go. And Moses is like, okay, but do not go back on your word again. Because at this point, Pharaoh had kind of gone back and forth a little bit wishy-washy once or twice. Well, surprise, after the flies clear up and Pharaoh's like, huh, no more flies. He immediately goes back on his word and doesn't let the people go even into the wilderness a little bit to make their sacrifices. Plague number five was death of livestock, possibly caused by gnats and flies, except for one small detail. One, God had announced that all of the livestock in Egypt would die, but also none of the livestock that belonged to the Hebrews died. Not one single animal. That's insane. And at this point, the magicians are like, yeah, we out. We are, you know, not at all in this contest. Pharaoh is still hanging in there, though. Which brings about plague number six, boils. Moses and Aaron toss a handful of soot, ash, into the air, and it causes boils to break out in all the people of Egypt. Painful ouchie wouchie boils everywhere everywhere but not on the hebrews again none of them and the egyptians were a fairly clean people like they were not a particularly bath phobic type of 
society. So the fact that they were breaking out in boils and their slaves who worked in the mud were not tells you that something was up because this is not how things would normally go. Also, handfuls of soot do not cause boils nationwide. It's just not how that works. At least I certainly hope not. Well, not unless you're doing a plague. For those of you keeping score at home, we just finished plague number six, which was again boils, and now we are on plague number seven. Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. I know this is starting to sound familiar. Imagine being Moses and Aaron. Let my people go. No. Plague. Let my people go. No. Plague. Anywho, they go before Pharaoh and they're like, you are insane for not letting the people go and God has raised you up specifically so that he can show how strong he is and specifically so he can show how mighty he is and you are resisting in a way that is not going to end well for you tomorrow there will be a hailstorm a hailstorm like none that has ever been seen in Egypt before and everything out in the field will die so if you want your livestock and your slaves to survive you should bring them under cover the people of Egypt are seeing all of these plagues play out and suffering from all of these plagues so the ones that had feared God and realized that they were not going to win they being Egypt against the Hebrews God brought all of their slaves and livestock under cover and some of Pharaoh's household did this as well and those who did not fear God or thought that Pharaoh was still going to win left their slaves and livestock out in the field the next day the hailstorm came and it was wild just absolutely insane hail that flattened all of the standing plants any animals or people outside during this hailstorm were struck down dead there was lightning and fire, and it was a show worth watching. Nothing like this had happened in Egypt since it became a nation. And at this point, Egypt was already a fairly old country, certainly one of the oldest around at the time. But no hail, not a single one, fell on the land of Goshen. You might remember that Jacob's family had been given the land of Goshen by the pharaoh who did like Joseph back when Joseph was second in command. There was no hail there. This land that had been given as a gift and was now the slave quarters was completely fine and untouched. But there were lots and lots of dead people and livestock and standing plants, all because Pharaoh's heart was too hard to let the people go. So he calls Moses and Aaron before him and he's like, I made a mistake. I have sinned, me and my people. I will let you go if you will call off this storm. Moses and Aaron are like, all right, but you better not be cheating us. You better not go back on your word, bro, because this isn't going to end well for you. And Pharaoh's like, obviously not. I understand. I will let the people go. Pharaoh was lying through his teeth. As soon as Moses left the city, he stretched out his hands and the storm stopped. And Pharaoh was like, huh, never mind. There's no more hail and I still have a slave population. Who's the real winner here? It's me, Pharaoh. This brings us to plague number eight, locusts. Long story short, they ate every single green thing in all of Egypt except for the land of Goshen. Pharaoh still doesn't let the people go. So we get to plague number nine, darkness. How is darkness a plague? Well, darkness is a plague if it happens during the day and just in the land of Egypt, again, with the exception of Goshen, there was no sun. It was darkness so dark that it could be felt. Impenetrable darkness, pitch black all day for three days. That's a long time for everything to be pitch black. And Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and is like, please, sunlight, we need the sun back. And they're like, don't cheat us. And Pharaoh's like, of course not. Why would I do that? All of the people can go, but not the livestock. Pharaoh's not stupid. He's well aware that if everyone goes with everything they have, they ain't coming back. And Moses and Aaron are like, what are we supposed to sacrifice? We don't sacrifice people. We need the livestock for the sacrifices. And Pharaoh's like, no. And Pharaoh is so pissed that he tells Moses and Aaron that if he ever sees Moses again, it will be the day that Moses dies. And Moses is like, 
Very well, you will never see my face again. And a tenth plague is threatened. And the tenth plague is going to be by far the worst. It will be the death of every firstborn living thing, human and animal, in the land of Egypt. The Lord promises that when this plague is over, Pharaoh will not only let the people and their livestock go, he will let them go permanently. This is no weekend day trip into the wilderness. This is freedom, but it comes at a very high price. This time, Goshen is not automatically exempted from the plague. The way that the Hebrews will protect themselves from the angel of death that will kill all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt is by killing a lamb and smearing its blood across the doorpost. When the angel of death came and saw the blood on the crossbeam, it would pass over that house and all inside would survive. However, any house without that blood would see the angel of death come. And the angel of death would take the firstborn. As God explained this to Moses, he also let him know that this was how they were going to plunder the Egyptians and receive payment for their 400 years of slavery. The Egyptians would send them out loaded with gold and silver, and they would never have to return to Egypt as slaves again. God gave many, many other instructions in preparation for this longest night, the night before freedom and the night of death for Egypt, the night that we now know as Passover, because the angel of death passed over the houses of the Hebrews. At midnight, all of the firstborn without blood over their doors were struck down, and it was a cry in Egypt that has not been heard since. There was not one house where someone was not dead. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron before the night was even over and set the Hebrews free. All of them. Everything that they had. All of it. At this point, the people of Egypt were broken-hearted and also broken-spirited, and so they wanted the Hebrews to get out and go away. Well, most of them. Quite a few Egyptians actually went with the Hebrews because... Despite the fact that they had just the day before been their slaves, the Egyptians realized that the Hebrews definitely had a bigger, better, stronger god on their side and that Pharaoh was utterly defeated. The entire nation of Egypt, though, did pour out a lot of gold and jewelry and silver and things like that upon the Hebrews, in part to make them go away and also because they wanted to appease whatever the Hebrews god was upset about, i.e. the slavery, as fast as they could so that the Hebrews would get out of Dodge. And they did. They got out of Dodge. The Hebrews consecrated their own firstborn to God as a remembrance of what he did in Egypt, this grief and power and glory that he had shown. God was leading them into the desert, and he was leading them in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, the direct route to Canaan would have taken them through the land of the Philistines, and this people group had been slaves for a very long time, so God was well aware that they were not equipped to watch a war, let alone fight one. And so going through the land of the Philistines would have disheartened them greatly. Instead, he took them straight into the wilderness, toward the Red Sea. Remember hard-hearted Pharaoh, who was kind of an idiot and got through ten plagues, including the death of the firstborn, because he was too stubborn to let the people go? Well, about, I would say, approximately 60 seconds after he did let the people go and they had successfully gotten out of Dodge, Pharaoh was like, no, we need to get them back. And so he got his entire army together and chased the Hebrews into the desert. The Hebrews, showing their true colors, were like, why did God lead us to the desert to die? And Moses is like, God, you want to help me out here? God's like, be still. No, I am God. It will be fine. The Hebrews have basically two problems, the Red Sea and the Egyptians. More specifically, the Egyptians are pressing them up against the Red Sea, so they have nowhere to run. But also, there's the Egyptians, and they want to kill them all. They're not even at this point bothering to bring the slaves back. They just want to massacre them all as revenge. So God puts a stop to both of those things. First, he 
shifts from being just a pillar of fire and makes a wall of fire that blocks the Egyptians from the Hebrews. I don't know about you, but I'm not one to rush through a wall of divine fire to commit a massacre. Not today, Satan. Not today. The other thing that the Hebrews have to deal with is the Red Sea, which is not a small little puddle. Pretty deep, pretty wide, definitely not something they can, you know, swim across. Moses walks out into the water, strikes it with his staff, and right down the middle, boom, nothing. And by nothing, I mean all of the water has split, and now there is a canyon of dry land for the Hebrews to just walk right across the bottom of the ocean. I mean, there's no way to put this. It's just insane. Visually stunning, emotionally gripping, because on one hand, you have a wall of divine fire, and on the other, you have a pathway where there had only been ocean. The Hebrews cross all several hundred thousand of them and all of their stuff. So this was a long process. And the Egyptians are chomping at their bits on the other half of the divine fire. God is going to deal with both problems all at once. See, as soon as the Hebrews have finished crossing the Red Sea, all hundreds of thousands of them, the wall of fire lifts. And Pharaoh's army shows that they have big hubris energy and rush straight into the Red Sea. Because I guess the God that had just committed 10 plagues, including a very large death of firstborn incident and who had made a wall of divine fire to block you from the people you wanted to kill, is now going to let you cross on his magical land bridge in the middle of the ocean? That seems to be the only possible thought in the Egyptian's head. Well, spoiler alert, he doesn't. As soon as all the Egyptians are in the Red Sea, and the walls of water come crumbling down, and now everybody's drowning... The entire Egyptian army was killed in one fell swoop. That's what you get for chasing the Hebrews into the desert. Well, more accurately, pressing them real hard against an ocean. Didn't work out great. So the Hebrews are now on the other side of the Red Sea, successfully out of Pharaoh's reach. Pharaoh also now has a significantly shorter reach since he has no free labor and also no army. That worked out nicely for him, I guess. And God's glory is seen in front of all the world. Moses and Miriam spontaneously break into song, celebrating the fact that they are free. There's just one slight small problem. The Hebrews have never been free before, but we're going to see very quickly that as much as the Hebrews are willing to let God take care of them, they're not willing to assume that he will. And it's going to be a lot of back and forth and quite a bit of arguing before they figure out that he's really on their side. Next episode takes us back to Sinai by way of a lot of complaining on the part of the Hebrews. Moses is going to meet his father-in-law again, and all of the miracles in the desert are going to add up to a big mystery as to why the Hebrews weren't quite more trusting. But then again, why am I not more trusting? Anyway, stay tuned for next episode, Into the Wilderness, with the entire nation of Israel.